Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this March 8th, 2023, Wednesday reading of the Christian Science Monitor. My name is Melissa Bonnett. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. U.S. and Mexican officials move swiftly to rescue abducted Americans. Written by Alfredo Pena, Fabiola Sanchez, and Travis Lawler. Egyptian archaeologists hold their own history in their hands. By Taylor Luck. Women's rights defended across the world on International Women's Day, written by Sarah Giles. Oklahoma voters halt $4.9 million push to legalize recreational marijuana, written by Sean Murphy. And following up with miscellaneous articles. We start with U.S. and Mexican officials move swiftly to rescue abducted Americans. Two Americans who survived a drug cartel shootout in Mexico returned to United States soil on Tuesday, escorted by the Mexican military and FBI. Two others died in an abduction that interrupted a trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery. Written by Alfredo Pena, Fabiola Sanchez, and Travis Lawler from Associated Press in Ciudad Victoria, Mexico. A road trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery veered violently off course when four Americans were caught in a drug cartel shootout, leaving two dead and two held captive for days in a remote region of the Gulf Coast, before they were rescued from a wood shack, officials said Tuesday. Their minivan crashed and was fired on shortly after they crossed into the border city of Matamoros on Friday. As drug cartel factions tore through the streets, the region's governor said. The four Americans were hauled off in a pickup truck and Mexican authorities frantically searched as the cartel moved them around even taking them to a medical clinic, quote, to create confusion and avoid efforts to rescue them, Tamalapas Governor Americo Villarreal said. Terrified civilian motorists sat silently in their cars, hoping not to draw attention. Two of the victims appeared to be motionless, and a Mexican woman nearby was killed by a stray bullet. The shootings illustrate the terror that has prevailed for years in Matamoros, a city dominated by factions of the powerful Gulf drug cartel who often fight among themselves. Amid the violence, thousands of Mexicans have disappeared in Tamaulipas state alone. Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador said the people responsible would be punished. He referenced arrests in the 2019 killings of nine U.S.-Mexican dual citizens in Sonora, near the U.S. border. 
Mr. Lopez Obrador complained about the U.S. media's coverage of the missing Americans, accusing them of sensationalism. He said that when Mexicans are killed, the media, quote, go quiet like mummies. We really regret that this happens in our country, he said, adding that the U.S. government has every right to be upset by the violence. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland put blame for the deaths squarely on the drug cartels. Quote, the DEA and the FBI are doing everything possible to dismantle and disrupt and ultimately prosecute the leaders of the cartels and the entire networks that they depend on, Mr. Garland said. The FBI had offered a $50,000 reward for the victim's return and the arrest of the abductors. The survivors were taken to Valley Regional Medical Center with an FBI escort. The Brownsville Herald reported a spokesperson for the hospital referred all inquiries to the FBI. The two dead, Shaid Woodard, age 33, and Zindel Brown in his mid-twenties will be turned over to U.S. authorities following forensic work at the Matamoros morgue, the governor said. The survivors were found Tuesday in a wooden shack guarded by a man who was arrested in a rural area east of Matamoros called Ejito Tecolote on the way to the Gulf called, quote, Baghdad Beach, end quote, according to the state's chief prosecutor, Irving Barrios. The surviving Americans were whisked back to the United States soil on Tuesday in Brownsville, the southernmost tip of Texas, and just across the border from Matamoros. The convoy of ambulances and SUVs were was escorted by Mexican military Humvees and National Guard trucks with mounted machine guns. Robert Williams, brother of survivor Eric Williams, said in a telephone interview that he and his brother are from South Carolina, but now live in the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina. Mr. Williams described his brother as easygoing and fun-spirited. He didn't know his brother was traveling to Mexico until after the abduction hit the news, but from looking at his brother's Facebook posts, he thinks his brother did not consider the trip dangerous. Quote, he thought it would be fun, Mr. Williams said. When told that his brother was among the survivors Tuesday, Mr. Williams said that when they meet, quote, I'll just tell him how happy I am to see him and how glad I am that he made it through and that I love him, end quote. Egyptian archaeologists hold their own history in their hands. Written by Taylor Luck, who is a special correspondent in Luxor, Egypt. On a mild, late November morning, almost completely hidden behind the five-foot-high walls of a sprawling, yellow-gray, mud-brick city rising from the ground, a dozen members of an archaeological team survey and brush away soil. In a nearby tent, carefully holding jagged pottery shards in one gloved hand under a lens, Asma Ibrahim painstakingly scribbles down notes on the 3,000th 
piece of pottery. Traditionally, in this valley, rich with ancient Egyptian history and iconic archaeological sites, the role of ceramicist was filled by a foreign archaeologist with credentials from Cambridge or Princeton, not an Asuit Asiut University graduate from Upper Egypt. For decades here, Egyptians were the laborers, never the discoverers, but not on this dig. Quote, For once, Egyptians are the leading Egyptologists. Ms. Ibrahim says, smiling. As workers brush away dust and sand outside, a leather sandal pokes out from the ground, strap facing up, slightly sun-dried, but looking as if it had fallen off the foot of its careless owner days, rather than 3,400 years ago. Today, in Aten, the recently discovered city at the foot of the Valley of the Kings, Ms. Ibrahim, and a new generation of Egyptian archaeologists and specialists are uncovering fresh details of daily life in ancient Egypt, and with them, newfound feelings of professional pride and overdue respect. The discoveries are thanks to a new generation of Egyptian archaeologists trained and encouraged by Zahi Hawass, who is leading the dig at Aten. The colorful and bombastic former director of Egypt's Department of Antiquities used his public persona as, quote, godfather, end quote, of Egyptian antiquities to bring along 500 young specialists to staff all Egyptian excavation teams. Ms. Ibrahim is one of dozens who studied archaeology and Egyptology in Egypt, and then, at Dr. Hawass' urging, went abroad in the 2010s to work and train to gain technical expertise that Egypt lacked in restoration, conservation, pottery analysis, carbon dating, and surveying. Now they are back leading digs like this at a 10, grabbing headlines and changing the way the world looks at ancient Egypt. On January 26, Dr. Hawass' Saqqara team announced the oldest discovered mummy covered in gold, a non-royal named Hekashepes, buried 4,300 years ago. Quote, our role as Egyptians can not only be serving foreigners and bringing them coffee and tea, while they write books and make films, and we do nothing, Dr. Hawa says as he walks along Aten's serpentine wall. Quote, we needed to gain the technical expertise that we relied on foreigners for, end quote. Hold history in my hands. Inside the tent, Ms. Ibrahim's eyes are fixed as if in a peaceful trance fitting the iron caliper jaws on either end of the potsherd with a maestro's precision. Although humble, the 33-year-old admits she is an outlier, an Egyptian pottery specialist. Despite their homeland's wealth of historic sites that have captivated the world's imagination for generations, archaeology is not a career of first choice for most Egyptians. 
Of the few that pick up a trowel, even fewer specialize. The obstacles are many. There is little funding and access to texts, journal articles, tools, and even software is difficult. Credit has long gone to foreign experts. Quote, it is not a job, it is a passion, she says. Quote, you have to be inspired to pursue it, end quote. It was a chance trip to the Cairo Museum with her family as an eight-year-old that sparked the Asiut natives' fascination with ancient Egypt, particularly the golden sarcophagi and ceramic vessels that had seemingly outlived the sands of time. Quote, when I saw these artifacts, artifacts, I knew I wanted to study archaeology and help make rare finds to hold the history in my hands, Ms. Ibrahim, Ibrahim says. Now she holds up a blue painted vase with intricately carved gazelle heads poking out from either side, her favorite artifact from Eten. Her Asiut University didn't offer any pottery courses, so Ms. Ibrahim learned by volunteering with French and German excavations in Dashur and Asiut. Those experiences taught her the importance of pottery analysis in excavating, interpreting, and dating sites and artifacts. Inspired, she spent a decade relying on self-study, volunteer work, and foreign research institutes to develop an expertise in Middle and Early Kingdom pottery. Today, she is one of a handful of Egyptian ceramic, ceramicists and the only one piecing together the largest town ever unearthed from ancient Egypt. Quote, pottery gives us a lot of information. It tells us the story, how old something is. When you piece together pottery, you piece together a people, she says. <clears throat> Quote, now we Egyptians can put the story of ancient Egyptians together ourselves, end quote. A rare window. The story of daily life in, Egy in ancient Egypt is coming together in Etin, the so-called golden city. Etin was the residential administrative and industrial center of ancient Thebes, dating back to the 18th dynasty and the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep III, the golden age of ancient Egypt. Discovered by chance while this rare all-Egyptian team was searching near Madinat Habu for the mortuary temple of the, quote, boy king, end quote, Tutankhamen, in 2021, it is now providing an ever-widening window into the daily life of ancient Egyptians. Eten was abruptly abandoned by Amenhotep III's son, Akhenaten, when he transformed ancient Egypt's religion and moved the capital 240 miles north of Thebes. That means much of the city was left intact, as if Life was suddenly frozen three millennia ago, Egypt's own Pompeii. Bread remains in clay ovens. Precious stones are scattered in the jewelry workshop, 
and sun-dried bricks are neatly stacked in a tiny pyramid waiting to be carted off to build a temple or a palace. A serpentine wall that experts believe was designed to limit Nile floodwaters cuts through the north of the city. Quote, we have bread in an oven. We have preserved meat, a sandal workshop. A complete residential life is depicted here in Aten. Ms. Ibrahim gushes with enthusiasm as she holds up a rare four-handled jug. Quote, and it is not so different from our daily life today. End quote. Already, the team has uncovered seven districts containing homes, a bakery, kitchens, a tailor's shop, a weaver's loom, a tannery, a metalsmith's workplace, a sandal cobblery, and a butchery, complete with dried meats in jars, inscribed with the butcher's name, Louis. The team is also uncovering technical clues about how ancient Egyptians built and furnished some of the wonders of the ancient world. Its discoveries have included preserved amulet molds, a jewelry workshop, a brick factory, and granite, basalt, and pottery workshops. All of these, the team believes, were used to build and decorate Luxor's lavish temples and palaces, and craft <clears throat> the ornate treasures buried in King Tut's tomb. New Generation Lowering the brim of his trademark olive green fedora to shield his eyes from the rising Luxor sun, Dig leader Dr. Howes oversees the late morning progress in A10, the discovery that is becoming a career-defining achievement. With his outsize, enthusiasm, bombastic personality, and flair for promotion, he sells replicas of his fedora for charity. Dr. Howes has become synonymous with Egyptian archaeology over a four-decade career that has included stops as director of the pyramids at Giza, head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, and Minister of Antiquities. <clears throat> His career discoveries include two tombs in the Valley of the Kings and a worker's necropolis at Giza, pro proving once and for all that Egyptians did build the pyramids. But it is here, among bakeries and lost sandals, where the 75-year-old godfather of Egyptian archaeology is steering Egyptology into new horizons, bringing a generation of young Egyptian archaeologists and specialists along with him. Although recent years have seen more joint international Egyptian teams, his excavation is one where every role from extracting and sorting soil to analysis to conservation is done by Egyptians. <clears throat> Quote, As a young man entering a bookstore, I never found a single book on Egyptology written by an Egyptian. All our work depended on foreigners, and they took all the credit. But now we are a complete scientific team, Dr. Hawass says. After a Fulbright scholarship allowed him to complete his Ph.D. in Egyptology at the University of Pennsylvania and 
see the vast libraries and resources Western scholars have access to. He returned to Egypt, determined to develop archaeology back home. The needs to this day are many. Ceramicists, bioarchaeologists, archaeobotanists, surveyors. But Dr. Hawass's long-range plan is slowly filling in the gaps. In the early 2000s, he began a fieldwork school to teach the basics of excavation techniques. His Fulbright experience inspired him to urge hundreds of Egyptian archaeologists and students to study, research, and volunteer abroad to gain the technical skills the country lacked. Ms. Ibrahim was one such student, traveling to Germany and Poland through a scholarship from the Goeth Institute, where she learned digital database systems for recording artifacts, which she now uses to catalog finds from Aten and those at the Egyptian Museum. Quote, I always know they will come back. Who can resist this history in our homeland? Dr. Hawa says as he stretches out his arms, Aten to his right, the Valley of the Kings to his left. Quote, we have so much left to discover, end quote. Another core team member recruited by Dr. Howis is Siham El Bashawi, a Luxor native who grew up a few miles away from the Valley of the Kings and now preserves and restores everything from papyrus to mummies at A10. Quote, that feeling when you take items out from the ground in your own site, in your own country, in your own community, with your own two hands, you feel a sense of pride as an Egyptian, Ms. Bershawi says, as she adjusts the humidifier on a child mummy encased in glass in a tomb-turned-storeroom. Quote, it is your ability and skill that unearthed this item, and now you are the responsible one to protect it for future generations. It is an awesome feeling, she says. <clears throat> Earned respect. It is also a recognition for Egyptian archaeologists that has been decades overdue. Here in the Valley of the Kings, the names of foreign archaeologists still echo from history, such as Howard Carter, the Briton who excavated the tomb of Tutankhamen in 1922 and whose residence in Luxor is a top tourist destination. In a 10, two miles west of the Carter House, this all-Egyptian team is expanding a discovery that many say rivals King Tut's tomb. One that is earning accolades from academics and is listed as one of the top 10 discoveries of 2021 by Archaeology Magazine. With his all-Egyptian teams in place, Dr. Hawass is now accelerating excavations and discoveries at warp speed. Quote, the real mark we made in this city is to show for the first time the role of the young Egyptians who are leading in archaeology and Egyptology, says Dr. Hawass. Dr. Hawass' second team, working in Saqqara, south of Cairo, 
last November discovered the funerary temple of Queen Nerit and 50 ornate wooden sarcophagi dating back 3,000 years to the New Kingdom, the earliest tombs discovered in that region. Quote, two decades ago, we couldn't compete with international teams, but now foreigners look it up to us with respect. For the first time, we are seen on the same level as Western archaeologists, Dr. Hawass says. Other Egyptian Egyptologists making their mark include Monica Hanna, a leading heritage advocate, pushing for the return of Egyptian artifacts, such as the Rosetta Stone, and Nora Schauke, a pioneer in settlement archaeology in the Nile Delta. <clears throat> Quote, I believe now we have more Egyptians who are interested in the history their country has and who are better trained to apply critical thought and professionalism to their excavations and the interpretations of their finds, says Salima Ikram, professor of Egypt Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. While Egyptian archaeologists may finally be having their day in the sun, there are still hundreds of key contributors who continue to labor in anonymity, the local laborers. In Eten, just in the time of Napoleon, they physically remove earth, carrying away kufa, baskets full of topsoil. Egyptology rests on their shoulders, too, Along with the new generation of archaeologists, workers deserve to be, quote, celebrated, says Professor Ikram. Among the team's most recent discoveries are five undisturbed tombs and five four-foot-tall sealed jars at the edge of their excavations. Dr. Hawass is planning to open one of the Eten tombs soon and is continuing fundraising to extend excavations west of the city. Search for a Queen Among the details of ancient Egyptians' daily lives in Aten, Dr. Hawass' team has uncovered a royal clue, a name he believes may lead them to the lost tomb of Queen Nefertiti. Quote, Smenkare, end quote, the name of a mysterious pharaoh who ruled briefly between Akhenaten and King Tut was found on multiple inscriptions. Egyptologists are divided on the figure. Some believe Smenkare, Smenkare may have been a brother to Tutankhamun or a hitherto unknown co-regent with Akhenaten. Dr. Hawass is among those who believe Smenkare was a name assumed by Nefertiti after her husband Akhenaten's death, when she ruled for three years as pharaoh. While a separate British Egyptian team is guiding a search for the lost queen's tomb farther west in the Valley of the Kings, Dr. Hawass' team believes that by following this clue, they may find it one day near a ten. To Dr. Hawass, it would be a crowning achievement for Egyptian archaeologists permanently etching their names in the pantheon of famous Egyptologists. Already, though, 
Eten has made a major contribution to Egyptology and to Egyptian archaeologists being seen as peers. Quote, we are uncovering and preserving these items for the entire world, just like Western experts do, says Ms. Bershawi, the conservationist. Quote, this is more than a job. This is a calling. We are answering this call and being recognized. End quote. Women's rights defended across the world on International Women's Day. International Women's Day, March 8, will be marked worldwide with festivities and celebrations, while activists in some countries note advances for women. In other countries, such as Iran and Afghanistan, women still struggle against repression and violence by Ciaran Giles from Associated Press in Madrid. Millions of people around the world planned to demonstrate, attend conferences, and enjoy artistic events Wednesday to mark International Women's Day, an annual observance established to recognize women and to demand equality for half of the planet's population. While activists in some nations noted advances, repression in countries such as Afghanistan and Iran, and the large numbers of women and girls who experience sexual assaults and domestic violence worldwide, highlighted the ongoing struggle to secure women's rights. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Guterres noted this week, that women's rights were, quote, abused, threatened, and violated, end quote, around the world, and gender equality won't be achieved for 300 years, given the current pace of change. Progress won over decades is vanishing because, quote, the patriarchy is fighting back, Mr. Guterres said. The United Nations recognized International Women's Day in 1977, but the occasion has its roots in labor movements of the early 20th century. The day is commemorated in different ways and to varying degrees in different countries. Women gather in Pakistan's major cities to march amid tight security. Organizers said, the demonstrations were aimed at seeking rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Some conservative groups last year threatened to stop similar marches by force. Women's rights activists in Japan held a small rally to renew their demand for the government to allow married couples to keep using different surnames. Under the 1898 Civil Code, a couple must adopt quote, the surname of the husband or wife, end quote, at the time of marriage. The activists argued the law contributes to gender inequality because women experience strong pressure to take their husband's name. Surveys show majority support for both women and men keeping their own names. In the Philippines, hundreds of protesters from various women's groups rallied in Manila for higher wages and decent jobs. 
Quote, we are seeing the widest gender pay gap. Protest leader Holmes Salvador said, quote, we are seeing an unprecedented increase in the number of women workers who are in informal work without any protection, end quote. The United Nations identified Afghanistan as the most repressive in the world for women and girls since the Taliban takeover in 2021. The UN mission said Afghanistan's new rulers were, quote, imposing rules that leave most women and girls effectively trapped in their homes, end quote. They have banned girls' education beyond sixth grade and barred women from public spaces such as parks and gyms. Women must cover themselves from head to toe and are also barred from working at national and international non-governmental organizations. In Spain, more than one million people were expected to attend raucous evening demonstrations in Madrid, Barcelona, and other cities. Big rallies were also organized and are also expected in many other cities around the world, while in some countries only minor events are held. Spain, on Tuesday, passed a new parity law requiring that women and men make up at least 40% of the boards of directors of listed companies and large private companies. The same will apply to the Spanish government cabinet. Political parties also must have to have gender equity on their electoral lists, with names of male and female candidates alternating. Activists and left-wing governments in Spain have advanced women's rights in areas such as abortion access, menstrual leave, and parental leave over the past two decades. Many European countries also have made strides toward gender equity. This is the first International Women's Day since the U.S. Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion last year and many states adopted restrictions on abortion. Oklahoma voters halt $9.4 million push to legalize recreational marijuana. Oklahoma voters have rejected a move to allow the recreational use of marijuana for those over 21. Oklahoma already has a robust medical marijuana program. The proposal was opposed by various religious leaders, law enforcement, and prosecutors by Sean Murphy from Associated Press in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma voters on Tuesday rejected the legalization of recreational marijuana following a late blitz of opposition from faith leaders, law enforcement, and prosecutors. Oklahoma would have become the 22nd state to legalize the adult use of cannabis and join conservative states like Montana and Missouri that have approved similar proposals in recent years. Many conservative states have also rejected the idea, including Arkansas, North Dakota and South Dakota last year. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt and many of the state's GOP legislators 
including nearly every Republican senator, opposed the idea. Former Republican Governor Frank Keating, an ex-FBI agent, and Terry White, the former head of the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, led the, quote, no, end quote, campaign. Quote, we're pleased the voters have spoken, said Pat McFerrin, a Republican political strategist who ran the opposition campaign. Quote, we think this sends a clear signal that voters are not happy with the recreational nature of our medicinal system. We also think it shows voters recognize the criminal aspects, as well as the need for addressing mental health needs of the state, end quote. Oklahoma voters already approved medical marijuana in 2018 by 14 percentage points, and the state has one of the most liberal programs in the country. With more than 2,800 licensed dispensaries and roughly 10% of the state's adult population having a medical license to buy and consume cannabis. On Tuesday's legalization question, the quote no end quote side was outspent more than 20 to 1, with supporters of the initiative spending more than $4.9 million compared to about $219,000 against last-minute campaign finance reports show. State question 820, the result of a signature gathering drive last year, was the only item on the statewide ballot, and early results showed heavy opposition in rural areas. Quote, Oklahoma is a law and order state, Mr. Stitt said in a statement after Tuesday's vote. Quote, I remain committed to protecting Oklahomans, and my administration will continue to hold bad actors accountable and crack down on illegal marijuana operations in our state, end quote. The proposal, if passed, would have allowed anyone over the age of 21 to purchase and possess up to one ounce of marijuana, plus concentrates and marijuana-infused products. Recreational sales would have been subjected to a 15% excise tax on top of the standard sales tax. The excise tax would be used to help fund local municipalities, the court system, public schools, substance abuse treatment, and the state's general revenue fund. The prospect of having more Oklahomans smoking anything, including marijuana, didn't sit well with Mark Grossman, an attorney who voted against the proposal Tuesday at the Crown Heights Christian Church in Oklahoma City. Quote, I was a no vote because I'm against smoking, Mr. Grossman said. Quote, tobacco smoking was a huge problem for my family, end quote. The low barriers to entry into Oklahoma's medical marijuana industry have led to a flood of growers, processors, and dispensary operators competing for a limited number of customers. Supporters had hoped the state's marijuana industry would be buoyed by a rush of out-of-state customers, particularly from Texas, 
which has close to 8 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, just a little more than an hour drive from the Oklahoma border. Michelle Tilley, campaign director for YES on 820, said despite Tuesday's result, full marijuana legalization was inevitable. She noted that almost 400,000 Oklahomans already use marijuana legally and, quote, many thousands more, and quote, use it illegally. Quote, a two-tiered system where one group of Oklahomans is free to use this product and the other is treated like criminals does not make logical sense, she said in a statement. And on the Christian Science Perspective page, True Womanhood, as we commemorate International Women's Day, we can support the ongoing progress of gender equality by understanding each person's full expression of both masculine and feminine qualities given and maintained by God. By Anu Mathai. Did you know that International Women's Day was first observed in the early 1900s? And I was surprised to learn that protests against gender inequality started much earlier, with the first women's rights convention being held in Seneca Falls, New York, in 1848. It's interesting to me that this was also the era in which the founder of this news organization, Mary Baker Eddy, 1821 to 1910, experienced profound changes in her life. She went from being a single mother, struggling with chronic health problems and financial difficulties, to being a well-known religious leader and the founder of a worldwide church. Despite the inequality faced by women of her time, Mary Baker Eddy succeeded as an author publisher, editor, healer, lecturer, all at a time when women could not vote and were considered incapable of managing their own affairs. Her book on spirituality and healing, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, was included on the Women's National Book Association list of 75 books by women whose words have changed the world. From this book, it's clear Mrs. Eddy saw the need for progress in women's rights, for she wrote, Civil law establishes very unfair differences between the rights of the two sexes. On the same page of Science and Health, she also said, Our laws are not impartial, to say the least, in their discrimination as to the person, property, and parental claims of the two sexes. And further, she writes, if a dissolute husband deserts his wife, certainly the wronged and perchance impoverished woman should be allowed to collect her own wages, enter into business agreements, hold real estate, deposit funds, and own her children free from interference. That's from page 63. However, her focus was on something much deeper. Her protest was against the underlying, quote, mental slavery, end quote, from Science and Health, page 225, of false beliefs that would keep both women and men from
from achieving their full potential as daughters and sons of God. Her discovery of Christian science, which is fully explained in her book, has helped many thousands of people to find healing in unhappy human situations through acknowledging their God-given right to freedom. The powerful example of her life and the ideas in her book have proved to be life-changing for me. While I have always believed in equal rights for all, the study of Christian science has given me the spiritual understanding on which to base this belief. The very first book of the Bible says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. From Genesis 1, 27. God is our divine parent, and his nature includes both fathering and mothering qualities, what are considered masculine qualities, such as strength, courage, intelligence, as well as feminine qualities of love, tenderness, gentleness, grace. Being the children of God, the image or reflection of God, each one of us is a complete expression of God's fatherhood and motherhood. Science and Health explains, quote, union of the masculine and feminine qualities constitutes completeness, end quote. From page 57, identifying myself as whole and complete contributed greatly to a happy marriage. Marriage, I learned, is not about two halves coming together to make a whole. Rather, it is two whole ideas moving together in harmony with God. No room for inequality domination or weakness. I found the recipe for a successful marriage in Science and Health, quote, fulfilling the different demands of their united spheres, their sympathies, should blend in sweet confidence and cheer, each partner sustaining the other, thus hallowing the union of interests and affections in which the heart finds peace and home. End quote, page 59. It was also the sense of spiritual completeness, each reflecting the completeness of divine spirit, God, our father-mother, that helped me stay grounded when my husband passed on while we were living overseas. Returning to my home country was not without challenges, what really helped me overcome them was the recognition that as we are all children of God, men cannot lack feminine qualities, nor can women be deprived of masculine qualities. I realized that what appears as a, quote, gender gap, end quote, is only a gap in the general thought that needs to be filled with these right ideas about our completeness based on the universality of spiritual qualities. True womanhood is not about how different womanhood is from manhood, but about understanding how each one of us is forever the intact expression of the union of those qualities. One never takes away from the other, but enhances the other. 
It is our right to express our wholeness, our masculinity, and our femininity. Recognizing this brings us a great sense of freedom from restrictions and limitations and opens up wonderful possibilities. It's below 19. It's 19 below zero and the bird feeder is empty. What's a birder to do? By Robert Close, who is a contributor. Yesterday, the temperature bottomed out at 19 below zero here in my corner of Maine. As I stood at the kitchen window, peering out at the frozen landscape, I watched as myriad birds flitted about the feeder. There was only about an inch of black oil sunflower seed remaining in the long plastic tube, and it was this scarcity that seemed to incite them to a frenzy of competition for the last grains. Chickadees, nuthatches, juncos, house finches, goldfinches, and cardinals, as hardy as these species are, I still shivered for them as I watched their desperate bids for food in the biting cold. My dilemma, do I go out there to replenish the feeder or not? In addition to the cold, the snow was knee deep, but I was snug inside with a cup of steaming tea in my hands. I was mindful of guidance from those in the know that once one starts to feed birds, one must keep it up especially during the winter, when wild food is hard to come by. In essence, a feeder is a kind of compact. Yes, I'll feed you if you simply continue to put your beauty and your antics on display. When it comes to beauty, there are some stunning specimens, even at this latitude. I've already mentioned the cardinal, strikingly red against the snow. Another bird sporting a bright primary color is the blue jay. Then there is the rose-breasted grosbeak with its scarlet bib, the black and white checkerboard of the downy woodpecker, the buff and yellow of the cedar waxwing, and the subtler hues of the bluebird, said to be migrating farther north as global warming proceeds. As for antics, they are abundant as well. Other birds seem to be aware of the cardinal's majesty and unfussingly defer to it when it alights. The blue jay, on the other hand, blows into town like a Wild West gunslinger entering a saloon. Everybody scatters. The chickadee, Maine's state bird, is both acrobatic and tame. With patience, it can be trained to eat from one's hand. What could be more enchanting than that? Which brings me back to my dilemma. To venture out or not? My hand was forced when a bluebird, flying from the feeder, banged into the window. I pressed my nose to the glass and saw it there in the snow, the frigid wind fluffing its feathers as it sat motionless. That was it, then. I commenced the main cold weather ritual of donning parka, scarf, knit hat, boots, and gloves. I opened the door, and the air, sharp as flint, took my breath away. Pushing my way through the snow, I tripped over the drifts, all the while asking myself, how do they do it? 
How do birds and other animals survive this cold? The bluebird was still on the ground. I carefully picked it up and cupped it in my hands, blowing warm air on it while the wind howled above us. Finally, the creature gave a vigorous flutter. I opened my hands and off it flew. Grabbing the feeder, I retraced my steps to the mother load of seed kept under wraps on the back porch. I filled it to brimming, drew in a breath, and set out again, through the drifts, through the wind, tripping only once this time, as I held the feeder aloft like a beacon of hope and promise. And then, a small wonder, just as I was reaching up to hook the feeder in place, a chickadee landed on my shoulder and emitted a chitter of anticipation. I was so taken by this that I froze in mid-reach, willing to endure the cold wind for the sake of protracting the moment. I hung the feeder and the chickadee hopped onto it to stake its claim. Stepping back, I watched as other birds arrived, cold or no cold, they had a job to do, as did I. And just a quick summary of intersectionality pushes political hot button by Melissa Moore. Sometime in the 2010s, intersectionality left the ivory tower and got thoroughly wrapped up in the culture wars. The term intersectionality was coined and the theory first developed by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 in her article, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. Professor Crenshaw investigated the way the American legal system, feminist theory, and anti-racist politics all have a tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis. Vastly simplified, her argument is that in American society, racism is typically thought of as something that happens to black men and sexism something that happens to white women. Black women suffer double discrimination on the basis of both their race and their gender, but because they do not fully represent either protected category, being neither white nor male, they lose out on the legal and other remedies prescribed for such discrimination. This seems to be a critique not of intersectionality itself, but the way it is sometimes deployed, especially on university campuses. Of course, the theory is not immune to criticism. Some scholars have argued that its focus on interlocking identities isolates people in even smaller silos, placing such on emphasis, an emphasis on people's differences that it becomes hard to build coalitions and work together. Whatever one's stance on the positives and negatives of intersectionality, quashing all discussion of it seems unwarranted. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Science Monitor. My name is Melissa Bonnet, and please stay tuned for our next program. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.